0: Hello and welcome to the Tech4Climate podcast, I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways, with a membership platform, a Slack group, with a growing number of founders, investors and experts from around the world And recently, we went one step further with matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe, share one episode with a friends, join our community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are speaking with Alex La Plaza, partner at Lower Carbon Capital. Low Carbon Capital is a seed and early stage fund investing in technologies and solutions to dramatically reduce and remove greenhouse gas emissions. They aim to be the first money in and remain investing in the company for its full life cycle. Alex was born in Spain, but grew up in New York. After seeing international relations, he found himself spending a summer working in a school in rural Uganda. And describes how he first experienced the magic of environmental solutions being implemented with the installation of a water well, meaning increased school attendance of young girls. He went on to continue working on water security issues as a Fulbright Scholar in Indonesia before studying energy policy at Stanford, which eventually led him to work at the Orkardel Capital. In today's episode, we discuss scaling adaptation solutions and the Green Vortex, a positive feedback loop between policy and technology and how policies can make the cost of technologies cheaper and vice versa. Alex also gives his take on what the most promising sectors are for building impactful companies at scale whilst being highly profitable. In the second part of the show, Alex tells us how he switches off to find a healthy work-life balance. He also shares his go-to podcasts and books and also tells us with tips for catching the attention of climate tech investors. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with lower carbon capital, which backs kick ass companies that make real money slashing CO2 sucking carbon out of the sky and buying us time to unfeed the planet so welcome to the show
1: thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here excited
0: so that's the tradition on the show Uh, before we start could you please give us a 30 second introduction about lower carbon capital
1: happy to yeah lower carbon capital is a seed and early stage fund uh, we aim to be the, the first money in and we aim to keep investing for the life cycle of the company. And the the thesis is pretty straightforward. You know, it's in the name. We invest in technologies and solutions to dramatically reduce and remove greenhouse gas emissions, as well as buy more time for communities and ecosystems to
0: adapt. So let's start from the from the top in this show. We like to know more a little bit about the, the human behind the, the, the role, behind the, the responsibility. So can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do besides you know funding and supporting and investing uh, in exciting founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired and like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Alex? Yeah, so
1: I was... Born in Spain uh, and to an American mother and a Spanish father, grew up mostly in New York. And certainly that biculturalism really had a, an impact on, on my outlook and, and what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and both of my parents worked in uh, the medical field, specifically working with children with severe physical disabilities. So service of others was kind of uh, baked in, I would say since since early age. And obviously when uh, those two components combine, naturally as a as a bright-eyed eighteen year old, you go off and study international relations. So that's what I did. I originally thought I was going to work in the field of international development. I spent the summer working in, uh, in Uganda I was uh, alone I don't know how they sent me out there as a, as a 19 year old uh, out there in in the middle of uh you know 20 20 miles to the nearest paved road in the middle of uh, rural Uganda but I was working at a school and that's where I really got the first taste of kind of the the nexus between development and and human uh security and well-being and the environment because I was working at this school and you know, I, I saw pretty clearly that the the impacts that droughts and unpredictable rains were having on on these agricultural communities, and really realizing, you know, that these are the most vulnerable people. These people had the least role in the climate challenge. You know, they. Uh, I think electricity was was very very hard to come by uh, in that area, and so. And yet they were, they were getting the hit the hardest. Um, and at the same time, I kind of saw the the flip side of, you know, the magic of when environmental solutions are implemented. We were at the school and I was part of getting a, a water well installed right at the school. And I pretty quickly, it led to record rates of, of school attendance, particularly of of young girls because they no longer had to spend hours every day going to fetch water um, for their families. And so from there, that that led me to work on issues of of water security in in Indonesia as a Fulbright scholar. Um, Indonesia, you know, I had I had a bunch of eloquent reasons in my application why Indonesia, but the the truth is, I was just a big fan of Anthony Bourdain, and he's a real romantic about Southeast Asia, and so it really got me hooked. And um, I was working on a. On a little island uh, next to Bali called Lombok, uh, a rural island, a volcanic one where rivers stream down from the volcano in the center. And and they were having issues of, of water insecurity because people on, the, on the, the volcano were chopping down the forest for fuel. And so it became obvious like, OK, it's water security insecurity, but really it's an issue of energy access. Um, if they had access to electricity or, or to other forms of energy, they wouldn't need to cut down their forests. And if they had their forests, they wouldn't be dealing with you know flooding in the rainy season and, and drought in the dry season. So, realized energy access was was kind of the the main game uh, that that I wanted to learn. I went to Stanford to do so. Um, and while working on energy policy there, you know, it's, it's hard to go to Stanford and not get captivated by all the people working on cool solutions all around you while, while you're reading and writing things that people will probably never care about. Um, and so that's where I got my first taste. Uh, that's where I first started getting involved in the what we call climate tech today. Um, and that's what led me to lower carbon.
0: Fantastic. So maybe that that's a good um, a good segue here. I like to get a little bit like you know you already covered uh, this uh, this journey that uh, that you had so far, uh, traveling different uh, location in the world. I mean, can you maybe recall one or two piece of uh, you know experience that in a way gave you an edge to uh, join Carbon Capital later on and now today be uh, be a partner?
1: Yeah, I should say. I actually first heard about Lower Carbon on a podcast, funny enough. So if you're if you're out there listening to the podcast, it's, uh, you know, you never know where podcasts can lead you. Um, the, the one to two pieces, I would say above all, was probably curiosity. I mean, at Stanford, Stanford is just this playground of opportunities. You can run around and explore any curiosity you had. And um, I think I really struggled at the time to find one path that I wanted to stick with because you know, climate tech was evolving so rapidly. There's so many components of it. It's so wide and deep that the opportunity cost of picking any which sector or tech to focus on felt so high. So I just started, you know, going around and, and exploring a lot of them. I worked on cement decarbonization, electrification of mobility in East Africa on carbon removal on chemicals. And um, it turns out a lot of the, the companies, the startups that I was studying in this space um, unbeknownst to me, happened to be in lower Carbon's portfolio, uh, just coincidentally. And so uh, I think it helped quite a bit on, in my interview process that I knew that I had done in-depth research on their portfolio without their portfolio having been public at the time. Um, so that was that was, uh, you know, somewhat lucky. Uh, it was uh, I guess just curiosity led me there if i if I had to say anything. And um, maybe the second thing is the through line between all the spaces that I studied were, I would say the solution sets were somewhat unreasonably ambitious. it was it was you know, solutions and technologies that uh, has no shortage of skeptics, things like carbon removal and cement decarbonization. These are really hard solution sets, um, but those that I thought could really move the needle on greenhouse gas emissions. and um, I think fortunately, uh, lower carbon felt the same way and kind of shared that same ethos. Um, so yeah, curiosity and unreasonably ambitious uh, ideas, I would say.
0: So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Just to uh, to reflect on uh, on you as a person, uh, before diving into more like the, the industry context that uh, we'll cover today, um, you already mentioned this, this journey again, but would you recall like any aha moment uh, in terms of why to jump into more like the, this uh, climate, climate tech uh, industry as of today, and in a way this like progression, any particular moment where you would uh, define as like, that was like the moment where I said, instead of going to uh, the finance world or maybe consulting or uh, whatsoever, mm-hmm. I really want to put uh, all of my sweat and effort as you do today uh, to help solving this uh, this problem.
1: Yeah, there's probably a few moments. Certainly, the one with the water well was probably one um, my experiences in Indonesia. I, I would say there was one experience in particular I had in Indonesia where I had. High uh a volcano. It was an active volcano. So it's got all these fumes uh, coming out of it. And, you know, you get to the top and it, because it's an active volcano, it's just, it's just rumbling so hard that it, it viscerally shakes you, you know, it really shakes you to your core. And at the time I was reading about geoengineering, um, you know, one of the, the, probably the most controversial fields in, in climate and, and just means of using technology to to combat climate change, and volcanoes are the natural analog for for geoengineering, um, because when volcanoes erupt, they eject uh, sulfur emissions into the into the stratosphere and reflect sunlight, effectively cooling the planet. And so, you know, standing on that rim, uh, the rim of the volcano, I realized, wow, you know, humans have the potential to to mimic this power. Uh, you know, that was that was quite literally shaking me. Um, and not only do we have the power to do that now, but we've been doing that. And so that kind of imposed on me the, you know, the weight of of technologies, uh, or specifically climate technologies, and kind of where at that moment, I would say is where I knew I, I wanted to focus on on climate technologies as, as a, one of the most powerful lovers Um the the other thing I'd say is, um, and this is less of an aha moment, but more a gradual realization at Stanford is, as I said, I was working on policy there. I was doing a, a master's degree in international policy, and um, I started learning a lot about what some people call—I've uh, heard it referred to as the green vortex—or you know, it's like this positive feedback loop between policy and technology, um, in whereby. I, policies can make the cost of technologies cheaper. Um, and in effect, technologies can make the cost of policy cheaper. I think specifically a good example is you know, policies in Europe that made the cost of solar power and wind power cheaper. Um, by reducing those costs uh, and making the cost of renewable energy cheaper, it's easier for policy makers to then be more ambitious and have lower political costs of, of ramping up climate ambitions. And so Um, that was, that was one realization that I, you know, I really wanted to tap that virtuous feedback loop. Um, and in doing so, I thought the, the technology side of the, of that cycle would be a little more fun, at least in the early days. And and that's kind of what led me to, to work on the, on the tech side.
0: So let's, uh, now let's take a, a zoom out and a step back at the, the state of uh, climate adaptation as a, as a sector. I mean, it's uh, challenges and, and opportunity. I mean, why does it matter in the, the context of, uh, of the fight against climate change today? And we'll try uh, to go deeper with you uh, today. Maybe we can start. Uh, you can start by giving uh, to the audience your overview of the, of the current situation and upcoming trends. I mean, we hear those heat waves, you know, food stock scarcity, like water scarcity flood desertification and and you name it i mean what is the magnitude of the of the problem where adaptation is and, and will be even more necessary in the the future if you can like you know share some some data points about those uh, uh, different uh, you know uh, challenges that uh, that you see uh, already happening today i
1: be too yeah i mean the backdrop here is you know we're record, as we're recording this i'm sitting in new york city with uh what is currently the worst air quality in the world because we're we're being choked by wildfires hundreds of miles away in in canada and so it's uh it's quite literal at the moment um uh, i would say adaptation you know to date has largely been viewed as a government an, uh, an issue for governments or infrastructure to solve Um, but, you know, from where I sit, I think there's a lot of opportunities for, for climate tech and for venture and for markets to scale, scale adaptation solutions. Um, the need I think is, is threefold. There's, there's three big reasons I think about it. The first and the most obvious is, you know, we're already at 1.2 degrees Celsius today. We're, we're fast on our way to shooting past two, two, two degrees Celsius, um, and even at where we're at today, there's, you know, untold human and environmental catastrophes happening. It's literally becoming too hot to live in parts of the world. Uh, if you've never heard about wet bulb temperatures, you know, the point at which it's, it's too hot and humid for humans to literally be outside and, and sweat and naturally cool down. I'm, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but um, we're seeing this happen today. And so even if we zeroed out emissions tomorrow, we would still have to deal with um, the the really catastrophic environmental impacts that are starting to ripple out across across the planet. Um, second thing I'd say is because it's, it's precisely because it's already causing problems, it's already an issue that that is here today and not far off into the future. Um, there are, in particular. I- economic effects and challenges like, you know, the, the closing of factories, the clo- choking of supply chains, and more generally, just erasing GDP off the map, uh, you know, that creates opportunities for markets to step in and scale solutions more generally. Um, you know, the I think to give you a data point, I think Bank of America put out a report estimating that climate adaptation market is worth $2, to $2 trillion a year. Um, an important caveat I'd say is uh, the more we adapt now, the less costly it will be in the future. Um, and then third, and, and perhaps most importantly, and this is what I believe most strongly, and I think um, and not everyone agrees with, but you know, contrary to what has long been a, a commonly held belief um, that there is sort of this zero sum trade-off between investing in mitigation and investing in adaptation, Um, I actually see plenty of ways in which adaptation is decarbonization, you know, uh, for example, efficient air conditioning not only cuts heat deaths, it also cuts CO2 emissions, Uh, wildfire management uh, reduces wildfire destruction and impacts um, and methane emissions, Uh, you know, using land for for food production rather than fuel or or animal feed reduces food insecurity and uh, nitrous oxide emissions. So there's a lot of ways in which, you know, adaptation is actually decarbonization. Um, But, you know, all that being said, there's an important caveat is, and that's that the reverse is also true. You know, if we don't adapt, climate impacts could overwhelm any capability we have to decarbonize. You know, we're already seeing places like in China, you know, when rivers dry up, you can no longer manufacture solar panels, EVs, batteries, um, I- extreme heat in in Europe last summer closed hydropower plants and nuclear power plants, only to be replaced by gas generation. And you know, all over the world, when when heat waves push electricity grids to the brink, markets respond often by by scrambling for for coal power and coal generation. So, um, not only is adaptation decarbonization, but the failure to adapt will make decarbonization harder.
0: So to go a little bit deeper uh, on the understanding and prior going to more like uh, you know what are the existing solution and after that what are the the upcoming solution that uh, that you see in terms of the adaptation. Um, I mean, we understand like this, this is a definitely a tremendous challenges uh, and represent. I mean, so could you maybe share with us like. Is are we all equal uh, regarding those effects? Uh, I mean, we often hear like the the south and uh, all the, the southern hemisphere is like paying the the harder price. Is it still true uh, today? I mean, you mentioned like the the air quality you now uh, in New York. So, uh, is do you see like any any balance there? I mean, and um, who will uh, you think like in the near future pay also the the, the hard price? I mean, uh, in. Maybe double-clicking on what you already started to, uh, to mention, but like, what are the you know, indirect and non-obvious consequences uh, at the human and economical level uh, that you have identified uh, that if adaptation is not in place, uh, we will uh, suffer from?
1: Yeah, the, to answer the first question, um, everyone on the planet will be impacted. Uh, by climate change. I think that's not a controversial statement to say. Everyone already is being impacted in, in one form or another. You know, the fact that I'm, I'm inside while uh, you know the New York, New York City has terrible air quality because of wildfires hundreds of miles away is I think a, a, a clear evidence of that. Um, but that being said, it's without a doubt the, the communities and the ecosystems that, or the communities that have had the, the, the lowest or the smallest role in contributing to the problem are those most vulnerable. Um, Not only are they often uh, in places that will feel the impacts the hardest, um, particular, you know, I'm thinking about uh, areas of the world that will see the highest, uh, the the hardest heat waves um, that also happen to coincide with very large population centers. I'm thinking South and Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, they will see uh, disproportionate impacts despite having a disproportionately low share of of the uh, of, of co2 emissions um but m- i think more importantly they their ability to withstand these impacts are just going to be far lower and their ability to recover from them will be far lower you know i think it's If you look at uh, what happened in Pakistan last year with with the flooding that submerged, um, you know, about a third of the country and and produced like 30 million climate refugees in the course of a week, essentially, um, that is that will have impacts on the country for for years, for years. Um, Whereas, you know, a, a hurricane that hits in the United States um, our ability to withstand and then recover is is clearly much different. Um, so that's what I'd say on on the first question. Um, in terms of impacts and ways that uh, are maybe less thought about, I, it's hard to say because you know the climate impacts will be so foundational uh, to to modern society and our global economy. Um, and by that I mean, you know, food and water insecurity are kind of the base of the pyramid, and just and just physical security in terms of natural disasters. Um, these will shake and erode the foundations of of global economic stability um, in with effects that will ripple out in in ways that will be really really hard to predict. Um, but quite scary. Um, and I think all this points to the need uh, for adaptation today because of what I said earlier is, you know, the, the more you adapt today, the more you build in resilience beforehand, um, the easier it will be to withstand and recover in the future.
0: So now that we uh, get uh, a better understanding of this uh, very dark, uh, <laughs> dark backdrop that uh, that we have here, uh, let's maybe speak a little bit about like uh, already like uh, you know alternatives and, and solutions in place uh, today. Maybe if you can pick like um, you know a few of the most impactful um, you know that uh, that you can uh, that you have seen. And, And who is already, uh, you know, like putting them in place? I mean, how is that market already uh, organized? And then after that, uh, the following question will be more about like, what do you see in terms of uh, innovation and and need for innovation there? So maybe let's start with Mm -hmm. what we have today here.
1: Sure. Well, the most obvious uh, space and need for solutions is heat, you know, because climate change is simply uh, a challenge of too much heat. More greenhouse gas means more heat, more heat means more extreme weather. And so um, I think at a a kind of a more uh, fundamental level, we're getting to the point where it gets so hot that it affects the ability for humans to just uh, live and uh, uh, survive. And so air conditioning is an obvious one that you know, many folks don't often think of it as climate adaptation, but it certainly is. Um, it's a solution that is existing today. Uh, it You know, there's been studies that says the the rise of air conditioning in, in the U.S. in the 20th century actually cut deaths from extreme heat um, by 75 percent. So pretty remarkable solution that, that we know is already working. Um, we know uh, air conditioning is going to boom as the world gets hotter, as the world develops and, and grows wealthier. Um, and so the, that's already a solution that we need to ensure gets widely deployed, um, but we also need to ensure is uh, we improve and make, and make it far more high efficiency, you know, use refrigerants that are lower uh, global warming potential, um, can deal with humidity because it's gonna be most important in markets like India, Brazil, um, you know, Indonesia, places that are gonna be hot and humid. Um, so that's that's one obvious today. Um, I think along those lines, cold chain is going to be more and more important. Cold chain is kind of a, the the unspoken uh, uh, one of the unspoken backbones of the global economy that can take you know ice cream from from cow to cone or or vaccine for that matter That's from it. from you know labs to to jabs. Um, and so, cold chain is going to be more and more important to ensure that uh, you know the food food doesn't go wasted, that we have medicines uh, to provide. Um, it it's, it's not a, an obvious one today, but I think it's only going to grow more importance. Um, and then for the other, the other areas, I would say generally, I like to, I think of the solutions that exist today in, in a few buckets, uh, heat is being one of them, but the other is being food, uh, food security, water security, and then just general physical security, you know, resilience to, to disasters. Um, and there's, there's a whole number of, uh, solutions within each of them. I think the one that is probably, uh, the most obvious in terms of what the role it plays today and the role it will need to play in the future and evolve uh, is in insurance uh, or insure tech or a lot of folks, uh, you know, insurance is kind of this, uh, just kind of a more boring, you know, uh, fact of life. It's just, uh, and, and I think insurance is kind of the the $6 trillion safety net under the global economy that is going to grow more and more important as a means, both as a signal of where and where not to build, but as we're seeing in, in California today as insurers pull out of, of certain wildfire-prone areas. Um, but also just the uh, you know, the ability to cost-effectively transfer and pull risks and, and get capital to people who need it after disaster strikes. Um so these are you know solutions that are, are not always uh, super technologically advanced. they're existing today um, but I think are certainly an adaptation and certainly um, only going to grow in importance.
0: So let's speak now a, a little bit about the, the future of adaptation and you know emerging alternatives uh, to traditional solutions that you see uh, maybe that is been developed in labs or like very uh, still very early stage. If you could maybe like pinpoint a few upcoming innovation uh, with their potential and, and weaknesses or, or challenges at this stage that you have identified, and um, you know which one are the most uh, you know promising or advanced uh, for you. No need mm-hmm. to name anyone. Uh, we don't want to, you know, create yeah. uh, any favoritism here. But more about like uh, just having a, an understanding of uh, what is coming on that sense.
1: Sure. Um... The space I've been thinking a lot about recently is controlled environment agriculture. And, you know, this is kind of an umbrella term to include everything from the low tech greenhouse to the vertical farm specifically. I'm interested not in the vertical farms because I think there's always going to be challenges with, with the energy use and the energy efficiency of, of those certainly relative to, uh, to field agriculture, because, you know, it turns out it's hard to compete with the sun. Um, but just advanced greenhouses as a means to grow produce far more efficiently you know we're seeing um in the netherlands in particular as the world leader in in advanced greenhouse agriculture they can produce you know 10x the yield of of field agriculture with something like 85 percent the water and the fertilizer use um and i think this is only going to grow more important because as as Climate uh, instability wreaks havoc on on weather patterns and and agriculture or outdoor agriculture. I think more and more of it will move inside. Um, there's also the the tailwinds of you know nearshoring of supply chains um, and and more generally, this is a you know there's so much data in in these warehouses or in these greenhouses rather that um, it becomes a really exciting opportunity for things like. AI uh, to to automate and to optimize um, for us to really maximize food production while minimizing the inputs. Um, that's one area I'm excited about. Another one in the in the food security space is um, I work a lot on cellular agriculture, just producing products and goods uh, using um, bio uh, synthetic biology. Um, In particular, cells to produce things like meat, cheese, uh, coffee, uh, milks, uh, really uh, many products that are very greenhouse intensive today, but that can actually be replicated, um, biologically speaking, exactly uh, the same, just using cells. Um, One area here that I think is going to be important is actually uh, feeding the cells. You know, cells, microbes also got to eat. And so, Um, finding ways that we can feed cells, uh, their inputs, their, their sugars without, um, significant land use implications, uh, like, you know, (laughs) cutting down forests to grow sugar, to make lab grown meat is is not going to be a good solution. So, um, ways of reducing the impacts of, you know, kind of future food technologies is, is an interesting space. Um, and then one that's emerging actually, that has been, uh, pretty low tech to date um, and I think we're living with the consequences right now is, is wildfire management. Um, you know, a, a forest's best friends paradoxically are, are actually fires and, and, and axes. So ways of, of scaling, using technology to scale forest management um, by uh, scaling quote unquote, good fire prescribed burns or uh, forest thinning um, to, uh, to make it far more, uh, Scalable than what we do today, which is largely uh, manual labor and, and people on hand um, and, and on foot. Um, there's a lot of really exciting opportunities there that I think have have significant implications for our, our uh, resilience, but also uh, climate emissions. You know, as I said, the more you can handle wildfires, the the, the fewer emissions we will have as well.
0: So taking a macro approach and stepping back for a bit, I mean, could tell us, according to you, what are the, the US advantages and, and weaknesses in regard of uh, innovation and production that will lead to uh, a world that can be fully equipped for adaptation? Uh, how do you compare maybe US uh, versus China in the uh, in the EU?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, I would say, from a macro level, the United States has the advantage in that it's quite a dynamic and diverse economy, and so this has significant advantages in the realm of climate adaptation because a) it is um, more resilient in some respects to certain climate impacts than maybe some other economies. Let's say, for example, economy that is highly dependent on one commodity crop uh, to make up makes up a big share of their GDP, and uh, if, if they lose that, then it puts significant risk to the entire economy. The US has fewer points of failure like that in terms of uh, climate impacts. Um, so that's one benefit. And the second of it being dynamic and diverse um, is that there are a wider range of areas and solution sets in which uh, to work on and build and, and develop and scale technologies. Um, and so, from a from that perspective, in terms of uh, playing a role globally in 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 exporting, so to speak, uh, climate adaptation technologies, I think it has a natural advantage there. Um, and lastly, I'd say you know I spent a lot of time in, in my current role as lower at a, a lower carbon as an investor. I spent a lot of time working in emerging markets, working in other economies, looking for solutions and technologies um, in markets like uh, Latin America, Sub Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, and. And something that the U.S. uh, I think boasts as a natural advantage is just the technical talent of of people working in these spaces, people coming out of world-class labs with PhDs focused on climate um, mitigation and and adaptation. Um, And so that's certainly probably the biggest advantage I would say the U.S. has uh, compared to some of these markets.
0: So to close this uh, this section before diving into uh, into our carbon capital, I mean, what are the, the major like constraints uh, that you have identified for adaptation? I mean, do you see any major uh, roadblocks? Uh, is the need of like new policies to be put in place, like of international coordination or funding? I mean, what needs to happen to accelerate the, the movement and have a, a world fully equipped at best to adapt? And in which timeline do you think, or it sounds realistic to you?
1: I would say. The number one barrier is what I alluded to before. uh, It's this kind of mentality that is zero-sum thinking that adaptation and mitigation are uh, trade-offs that if you invest in dollars into mitigation or into adaptation, rather, it's, it's uh, it's money that could otherwise go into mitigation. Um, And as I shared earlier, I think that's just kind of a false dichotomy um, because I think they're in many ways really synergistic and, and synonymous and, and so that that thinking has held back uh, adaptation and investments and development of adaptation solutions for for decades. At this point, um, it's certainly starting to shift, um, but you know today we still see I think something like seven percent of all uh, climate funding going to adaptation; uh, the rest going into into carbon reduction and removal. Um, so part of it is just more more dollars, and I would say, kind of at a at a, a another level, the the idea that adaptation is um, something for the future has uh, also been a restraint, um, a constraint rather. The the fact that folks think, yeah, we can just invest in adaptation when the climate impacts uh, are uh, come around, um, as we know they're they're here today, um, and then lastly. Uh, that it is the role of governments uh, to to solve. And you know, certainly it's true. The governments need to play a massive role in adaptation, but I think there's a there's an exciting role for for markets and and private markets to to scale solutions, as I was explaining earlier.
0: So let's go into the the specifics of uh, Lower Carbon Capital. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about the uh, story, the genesis of it? I mean, what was the initial gap seen by uh, Chris and uh, and Crystal uh, that led to the, the thesis behind it?
1: So Lower Carbon was born out of Lowercase Capital, which was started by Chris and Crystal Saka. And Lowercase Capital was one of the most successful venture funds of all time. You know, it had a portfolio that included Uber, Twitter, Instagram, Stripe, Docker, and Chris and Crystal decided to step away uh, from Lowercase to focus on uh, some passion areas like uh, criminal justice reform and rebuilding the democratic tech stack and um, and climate, but more from a philanthropic uh, perspective. Um, and in doing so, you know they they got to meet. A, Climate companies they got got into the labs. They met activists. They met policymakers, and they recognized that um, there was a fundamental shift in technology uh, since clean tech 1.0, where you know we were earlier on on the line in which the unit economics just just didn't pencil out. But the line was fundamentally a curved line. You know, there was exponential growth um, powered by things like advanced computing and machine learning and. Um, synthetic biology. In in the point that we were at, uh, this is around 2017, 2018, um, we were starting to see solutions that were clean, but just made sense, right? They were just cheaper, they were faster, they were stronger, they were just plain better than existing solutions, in large part because renewable power is just was just cheaper than any form of fossil energy today. You know, digging up and and burning uh, fossil fuels is 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 actually quite expensive. Uh, all things considered, so they realized uh, that's where we were, and that their solution set—I mean, their skill set and expertise of of scaling uh, and building companies—was really valuable to a lot of these climate solutions. Um, and you know, VCs love big addressable markets and the addressable markets for climate tech, uh, are the, the 8 billion people in the world who eat food and, and flick on light switches and, uh, live in homes and use any form of transportation. So, um, I think there was this realization that, you know, we can't rely on these 8 billion people to buy climate technologies out of the goodness of their heart, um, or their love for the planet. We just need them to buy it out of self-interest um and because we are starting to see the curve lines made it such that uh things were the self-interest was there um i think that's where where they decided to to go more more meaningfully and and launch lower carbon
0: so we always uh, hear that uh, you know and it was maybe true more like a a year ago that capital was a, a community and uh, that uh, founders were looking also what are the other offers or service that uh, a firm can, uh, can offer to me when they invest in my company. So what I like besides the, this capital and now you guys also are quite well known, which is uh, this reputation is definitely uh, helping uh, other founders in their cap table. But, what are the extra, um, I would say, service and support that you offer to those founders um, and that in a way are solving or helping to solve uh, the challenges that are inherent to uh, the early stage uh, venture?
1: Generally speaking, I'd say the number one thing is that we are climate heads uh, first and foremost. You know, Most of the team at this point were all folks that were working in climate that had all dedicated their their lives and careers to working on climate and came across venture capital as a means to to scale climate solutions. And so, you know we've all been folks that we're all folks that have been deep in the space for for years at this point. and the way that lends itself uh, to to value to our portfolio companies uh, more concretely is, you know, we're the type of, of people that will go sell by sell on your techno-economic analysis, uh, it will introduce you to all the the relevant government agencies and policymakers that will move the needle for you. Um, you know, typically venture capital is often shied away from engagement with government and with climate. There's there's no choice, um, and in fact, it's it's quite an advantage when when you have those relationships. Um, and more generally, you know, this is a this is a deeply emotional space to build in, right? You're, it's, it's, it's a space where you're constantly thinking about existential risks, and it's hard. And you know, we can empathize with that uh, very deeply, and I think that goes a long way, and and kind of is embedded in in all the work we do for our founders.
0: So, besides uh, adaptation, as uh, we covered already, I mean, w- w- which are the sectors are according to you, the most promising for you today in terms of what I call the ICR or impact cash return, meaning building impactful companies at scale that can be also highly profitable business. Any underdogs or subsectors, areas that you didn't mention so far that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, going back to the thesis I kind of laid out, that was uh, one of the, the motivations to start lower carbon. We get really excited when we see, uh, companies building solutions for existing markets that are are just better, are cheaper, faster, stronger. In particular, for the largest markets like cement and steel and chemicals and aviation, um, what some people call the hard-to-abate sectors, um, because you know, because self-interest scales, if you can provide a solution that is kind of a substitute good, you know the demand curve. Um, and you know that folks will buy it uh, because it's drop-in, but it's cheaper. Um, that's where you can get some really, really—you can get the scale really quickly, but also see uh, significant climate impact as a result. And so we're always looking for those really big markets that can really move the needle on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and to be clear, you know, while we always look for impact, we we think scale leads to impact, not the other way around. So we're always looking for companies that just exist can exist in their own own right just on on the fundamentals of the business on their on their unit economics um not relying on on folks to on behavior change on folks to to feel good about using the products um so we're always looking for solutions like that i i would say um in addition to the ones i just mentioned heavy industry um a place where this is particularly uh true where self-interest is is the most important part is emerging markets we look for a lot of opportunities in in places like India and sub-saharan Africa and, and Latin America where uh you know things like renewable energy is just cheaper and so folks are going to buy it not because they care or, or even should care about the planet but because it's just the cheapest form of energy um I would say I should say we also do quite a bit of work in carbon removal. Have a, a dedicated fund for carbon removal, and as well as a dedicated fund for nuclear fusion. Uh, these are two spaces that the markets, you know, contrary to, to everything I just said about about existing markets and solutions that uh, are pure substitute goods, these are markets that that don't exist today, but we think will be uh, massive in in the the decades ahead. And so we we have are, are playing quite a bit of role in in getting those markets off the ground and, and shaping them early on.
0: So, taking the uh, the opposite opposite side, I mean, what do you believe that makes no sense whatsoever out of the, you know, page or sectors that uh, that you listened or explore right now? I mean, that could be like even considered as like you know, waste of time or resource, or even greenwashing. I mean, do you have any examples of like sectors that, uh, fortunately, doesn't spike your your interest? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the the one, number one that comes to mind is. It's probably hydrogen. Uh, to be clear, I think hydrogen has a significant role to play in a number of sectors, just not every sector. I kind of view hydrogen as the, the skeleton key of decarbonization because it, it really can unlock so many doors. It's quite a versatile um, uh, technology, if you will. Um, but that doesn't mean you should use it on every door, right? There are certain sectors it works for, uh, certain sectors it won't. Uh, in particular, when we look at hydrogen, we, we kind of like to focus on the ones that already have uh, existing hydrogen demand, things like chemicals and, and refining, uh, things that we know the demand is there and, and is dirty today, and so decarbonizing could, could make quite an impact. Um, other things like light-duty vehicles, um, maybe even medium and, and heavy-duty vehicles, uh, a little bit more questionable, but um, that's one thing I'd say. And I, I say this in particular because uh, there's a lot of of private funding. There's a lot, a lot of public funding going into this. Um, for reasons we can get into, but uh, uh, that's one I'd say is is probably disproportionate in terms of the the attention versus the the impact. Um, on a personal level, maybe it's just because I'm a climate guy, and but uh, and and not a VC or at least a climate guy first and a VC second. Uh, I just it's hard for me to get excited about like climate SaaS and verticalized climate software. You know, I recognize there's there's immense potential and a big role for software to play. It's just harder for me to get excited when we're talking about, you know, when 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 I'm spending most of my day thinking about decarbonizing cement and steel and chemicals and so software is, it feels a little um a little less exciting to me personally. Uh
0: that, that, that's interesting because, uh, you know, collaborating with a lot of, like, uh, climate tech funds, uh, it's true that uh, some of them more like have more appetite for, like, the software solution of the spectrum and, like, you know, uh, climate solution enabled by, uh, by software. So maybe that, that would be interesting to understand your opinion on, like, I mean, up to where into the development of a company capex like you will finance capex and support companies that are capex heavy uh which uh, often climate uh, you know hardware solution is requiring for um so what's the the threshold there where is like the um, i would say like this red line that unfortunately you, yeah. you won't be crossing as a as a venture fund
1: There's no hard and fast rules. Um, We wouldn't be in this business, and lower carbon wouldn't exist if we were unwilling to finance, uh, to invest in in deep tech and and hardware companies. I think it's pretty core to our ethos. Um, Just because of recognition that reducing greenhouse gas emissions at scale will will take steel on the ground, will take massive, massive building. that doesn't mean there that all should come from equity dollars by any mean by any means. But um, no hard and fast line. What I think I'd say is these solutions are easier to finance than maybe a lot of people anticipate. Um, in large part because of what I said earlier, you know the demand curves are known. the The substitute goods we we understand how uh, what people will do with them, what prices they'll pay with them. That makes it easier for for things like project finance and, and debt. Um, and so while we might not be the ones providing that project finance and debt because we're a venture capital fund, um, we know the, the right players to get in touch with and, and at, at the right times. Um, so no hard and fast rules, but generally I'd say is uh, we have an appetite for, for deep tech and, and hardware solutions at the earliest stages.
0: So a couple of more questions for this uh, first part of the interview. How do you guys measure impact? I mean, in comparison to other funds, sometimes there's no like you know, threshold in terms of CO2 removed or avoid or abate. I mean, uh, do you have any specific process frameworks? I mean, you mentioned you are a climate guy first and a VC second, so uh, I guess the, you are the. I mean, you are part of the scientist team, but do you have like extra uh, external scientists and teams that you rely on to assess projects that you will invest? I mean, how does it work in that sense?
1: Mm-hmm. This is another another uh, example. It's case by case. Um, we've thought about this very deeply. Um, in particular, thinking about, are, is it possible to have a uniform way of measuring impact? Um, and uh, largely, the answer is no. You know, climate is is so wide and so deep that it's impossible to have apples to apples comparison across the board, uh, certainly across the portfolio. Um, you know, how how do you measure impact uh, in, in a climate adaptation solution relative to a carbon removal solution? It's just very different, and so. Um, what I'd say is we are always looking for, for scale. We have a team of in-house science scientists and experts um, with deep expertise on things like life cycle assessments and, and techno-economic analyses that give us uh, perspective on the paths to scale and the impacts at scale. Um, and we take it on a case by case. We evaluate, uh, you know, certainly looking for, for gigatons, but no, no hard, explicit threshold. Um, generally, you know building a startup is hard enough as it is often we don't want to burden these companies with a a you know this with with lc with getting too rigorous too early on um we would rather you focus on building the solution and then and then understanding its impact um so yeah no no hard and fast rules uh but we're, we're not trying to burden founders with um with extreme granularity and accuracy when we know that if it works it's going to be impactful uh, that's kind of the, the high level
0: filter. that makes sense especially at the uh, early stage you know that spending too much time on like trying to have the the, the, the perfect framework uh, you know for founders makes uh, makes definitely no sense so what's next for uh, lower carbon capital
1: so we've we've just raised a few new funds. Um, we'll have some an- announcements shortly, um, but really just doubling down. Uh, we we truly believe in this space and we truly believe in, in the founders building in it. And so uh, we wanna be partners from, as I said, the, the earliest days to the, the, to the whole life cycle of the company. And so I think um, it's just uh, really just doubling down our efforts, trying to move faster, trying to go bigger, you know, it's not getting any cooler. So uh, much of uh much of what we've been doing, but just ramping up.
0: So, what's your uh, personal view on the on the climate crisis? I mean, uh, as I always ask, like, what would you say to uh, you know the people who already see uh, and go through the visible consequences of climate change? I mean, are we doomed?
1: We're not doomed. Um, I would say every fraction of every degree matters, and so. Uh, it's a worthwhile endeavor to to work on it, to dedicate your life to it. It's fulfilling, it's exciting. It's very stimulating. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, you know the the thing that gives me optimism is that with many climate technologies and solutions, the world would be better off with them existing. Even in a world without climate change, uh, give you a concrete example. You know, as we decarbonize and and move away from fossil fuels, that makes sense. Even if fossil fuels didn't lead to climate change, because you know, we still have millions of people dying a year, per every year from air pollution. So, climate tech isn't just about working on climate. It's just about making uh, the society as a whole um, more sustainable and more equitable. And I think that's a that's a a really worthwhile endeavor. And it uh, should hopefully encourage folks to, to put their skills to work. Um, and the second thing I'd say is you really don't need to know much about climate. Um, you don't need to be an expert and you don't need to be a scientist. There's a role for everyone to play in, in fighting climate change. So any skill set, any expertise, um, any will that you have to work in climate um, is valuable.
0: So, how can the community of uh, founders, experts, investors listening to the show today can uh, can help you?
1: Um, we always love to see ambitious ideas, um, no matter how early on. If you have an idea, if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to be a sounding board. Um, always reach out. You know, you can hit me up on on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I'm I'm pretty available. Um, so never hesitate to reach out, even if it's just an idea. Uh, we always are looking for for new partners uh, to get involved in the climate fight.
0: Any question I should have asked uh, and I did not for this first part of the uh, interview?
1: I, I've been hearing a lot of your questions about uh, what you're excited about, what you're not, to all your guests, so I'm kind of curious to, to flip it around on you.
0: What do you mean? <laughs> I'm going to get this one. <laughs> <laughs> what do you right, mean? What I do think it's a better
1: one then. Uh... I
0: don't know, man, uh... <laughs> but we see we see quite a bit of uh, interesting companies passing through. And I should uh, add you if you're interested on our uh, mailing list that we have. So we cu- basically what we have yeah. is like every month we curate four to five companies uh, that are currently fundraising early stage, uh, can be in different uh, parts of the world uh, and are currently fundraising and we share that with different funds. Uh, and I would um, love that. If funds want to be connected with them, we facilitate the connection and if not, uh, would be for the next month you know what i mean
1: awesome i would love that yeah
0: please do yeah it's kind of a way for us to you know amplify what they do give them visibility but through a vc framework so that's what we are mm-hmm. like uh, putting in place thank you so much alex for your time your uh, incredible insight on the industry i'm so excited to see so many you know brilliant people like you putting so much time and effort to uh, move the world towards a, a better and cleaner world so thank you so much for coming
1: It was a lot of fun. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more climate tech insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small, self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with our friends, and see you next time!